Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. My name is Samir Rahim. As Britain opens up this week and as museums, exhibitions and cinemas finally return, we talk to the director of The Barbican, Nicholas Kenyon. Nick previously directed the BBC Proms before he joined the arts venue and he's also a writer who was once music critic for The New Yorker and The Observer back in the day. His new book, The Life of Music, New Adventures in the Western Classical Tradition, explores the enduring appeal of the genre and how it has the potential to bring us all together. I talked to Nicholas about whether classical music is really as fusty as some of its critics believe, what the future of music performance is after Brexit, and what arts organisations such as the Barbican have been doing to survive the pandemic. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the Prosper podcast. Great to be here. So at the time of recording, we're just a few days away, fingers crossed, from the Barbican reopening. Um, Tell us how you've managed to cope over the last year. Uh, And, uh, of course, it's not just us reopening. It is the general opening up after this terrible period of a whole range of cultural venues who can now offer indoor performances under certain conditions. I mean, it's been an absolutely incredible period um, because it is now, what, 14 months since we had to shut down. Uh, There was a brief respite in the middle when we were able to do some performances with very limited audiences. Uh, We hoped to get back to something nearer normal just before Christmas, but then if you remember that was when the restrictions were clamped down again. And so really this is the first time we've been able to welcome back audiences. And it is extraordinary when you realise that the whole purpose of artistic activity is to bring people together to share experiences and the, the everything that we had to do during this period was keeping people apart and not sharing experiences. So it has been a big challenge and I think obviously a particular challenge for artists and audiences but also a challenge for our staff because What they are committed to is running a building that welcomes people in. 
and not to be able to do that has been a, a real loss. But we are looking forward now to something that is very positive in terms of uh, putting that to rights, welcoming people in and being able to celebrate. I mean, it's true of all performing arts, but particularly, I think, with classical music, I mean, there is the sense that the live performance where everyone's there and it's happening just for this one moment, there is something particularly special about that and, and, and something lacking when you, when you don't have it. Yes, although I must say how powerful it has been to experience digital classical music uh, and to have that performed without an audience, but for a virtual audience, because that has been able to bring together performers, albeit distanced, and to communicate to a, a, a far wider reach in terms of audiences than we're able to accommodate in the hall. So just um, a few days ago, Simon Rattle and the London Symphony Orchestra were back in the Barbican, on the Barbican stage, uh, distanced, a slightly smaller orchestra than normal, um, but presenting a live from the Barbican streamed concert, uh, which of Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde, which was an incredibly powerful experience. Now, as we get past the May the 17th deadline, we will be able to add live audiences to that mix. And so I think it'll be a gradual, a gradual return, but one we uh, are much looking forward to. And do you think technology and the kind of developments we've seen over the last year or so are going to change the way classical music is consumed and performances uh, in the long term? I do. I think that what has happened in this area, and it's also happened in various other areas to do with the circumstances of the pandemic, is that things that we have been slowly developing and slowly moving forward in the last couple of years have now raced forward in a couple of weeks or months. And one of those is the the um, creation of digital content in terms of not just classical music but other art forms as well but I think as you say classical music is particularly well suited to it. Now there, there have always been uh, televised concerts, there have always been televised operas but on the whole they have been a camera pointed at a stage whereas what we were trying to do with our Live from the Barbican series is to create an experience which works as well virtually as it does for the live audience in the hall with a lot of flexibility, a lot of camera movement, different configurations of the stage, different lighting and so on to turn it into a virtual experience. Um, I think that this is going to profoundly change the way that classical music operates in the future, not to, not that it will exclude live performance in any way, but it will add to it. Because think of it this way as well, that it's not just the pandemic that we're talking about here. It's a whole raft of other things like climate change, like sustainability. And I think that is potentially going to lead to less carbon footprint international touring by big orchestras, for instance, and relying on digital work 
to show that orchestra's work uh, while it operates on a potentially more local basis. So I think there's a lot of change in the air and who knows how it is all going to settle down. And part of that change might well be the result of Brexit, where we've, you know, we've read a lot about how it might be more difficult for British performers to go and perform in Europe and more difficult for European performers to come over to the UK. Is that something that you're worried by? Yes, that is a very significant concern. I think it's important to realise that from the Barbican's point of view, we are an international arts centre which goes far beyond Europe. So it's not just a Brexit question because we're as likely to be having links with Japan or Australia or the States in terms of bringing together our international programme. But the unresolved nature of the Brexit post-arrangements with Europe is potentially absolutely crippling and we need those to be sorted as soon as possible. It seems only a matter of negotiation to do so but we're still very very concerned. I think it's particularly concerning for those British groups who want to tour Europe and the conditions that they have to operate in. But equally, you know, we are dependent on European artists and the opera houses are equally dependent on those artists coming in securely and safely, but not having to quarantine for a fortnight. And you've also got the situation, which we all face from time to time, of sudden cancellations. Uh, That's particularly true in the opera houses. And then you're up against how quickly can someone get into the country in order to perform that night at Covent Garden or the Barbican or wherever it may be. In terms of sporting venues, there seem to be a lot more leeway and people, players, footballers and cricketers have been going around the world. And do you feel like that the government sort of left the arts behind and sort of ignored them as uh, uh, in favour of um, other more populist and in inverted commas uh, uh, arenas. Uh, I think I'd put it in a more positive sense that sport has done some excellent lobbying and has managed to achieve certain things which uh, the arts have been slower to achieve. But I think given the pilot projects that are now going on, the positive signs around May the 17th, and even now the positive signs about the June the 21st deadline, that we are looking at a definite progress and definite relaxation within the necessary, um, you know, caution that we have to go on exercising. So I think arts have not been top of the government's list. On the other hand, they have set in place the whole cultural recovery fund, uh, which has helped the institutions. What suffered in that is the whole freelance body, both in terms of musicians, actors, but also in terms of technicians, scene setters and so on. All those have suffered really significantly during this period. Do you think that there is a general problem with the with the public attitude, perhaps, um, to towards, let's say, classical music um, as was seen as a sort of an elitist thing or something that is not for everyone? Uh, and what can be done about it? I, I, I don't think it is uh, an elitist problem. It is a deep-seated 
English attitude to this whole body of activity, which is that it is somehow a nice-to-have add-on. And a nice-to-have add-on to life is the first thing you let go if there's a problem. And we're seeing now, not in the performing field, uh, but in this proposal to to restrict the subsidy to university courses in the practical arts and humanities, uh, which is so short-sighted in terms of the contribution that creativity makes to everything that is good about this country uh, and everything which makes it so successful in in the world market, where we know that the uh, uh, creative industries here are really respected, are really successful, and in pure money-earning terms, uh, are, are very successful too. So you're right to pick up on the fact that there is a... Um, a sort of underlying undervaluing of culture in this country, which compares very badly with France or Germany or Austria, where you you sense that it is absolutely essential to the way of life. And, you know, in Italy, where opera has been a fundamentally popular art form for centuries. Classical music has been dragged into culture war inevitably in the last year or so i know that you you know you used to run the proms and we had the whole debate last year about whether rural britannia should be sung or not and whether it was to do with covid rules or whether it was to do with being out of date or, or whatever do you think that in a way the last night of the proms although it's like a magnificent party and everyone who goes there loves it do you think that in some ways it's unfortunate that you know, this is the only time really you'll see live music on BBC One. But it it presents a view of the world of classical music that could be alienating to some people, shall we say. There's there's no doubt about that uh, at all. Mind you, we did have we did have, albeit a shortened version of Handel's Messiah on BBC One just before uh, just before Easter. So uh, it's not totally on its own, but. What I always found problematic when running the proms was the fact that the last night was thought of not as a last night of the season, but as an event on its own. And it was always an isolated event with that particular tinge to it. Uh, I think the fuss last year was entirely fabricated and really quite nonsensical. But it did raise some interesting questions in terms of the tradition of how the last night of the proms came to be, which was, ironically, a, really a creation of television in the days of Sir Malcolm Sargent. And uh, Henry Wood, before him, never had any of the all those verses of Rule Britannia sung. They were all the music was played by the orchestra and the people joined in with the chorus. So I, I think, look, there are far bigger issues in terms of culture wars around classical music. I would include, for instance, uh, the neglect of women composers. That has been a very significant thing over the years, which is just slowly beginning to be put to rights now. And, of course, the neglect of non-white composers 
resources is another area where we have got a lot of ground to make up because it's not as if this work by non-white composers or women composers hasn't happened, it's just it is not foregrounded by our institutions and that's, uh, uh, that's an area where we must do much better. But in the, um, in the new book I've written, I'm trying to explore the ways in which the canon of classical music changes constantly over time. It's not a fixed thing. And I think it will fit, it'll be flexible and change with the cultural situation that we're in. And that's as it should be. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So in the life of music, uh, the new book, as you, as you mentioned, is it attempt to, in a way, demystify, demystify uh, classical music for, you know, somebody who's just picking it up and be curious but doesn't quite know where to go or start? Yeah, well, I I hope it, it tells a really enthralling story, uh, a, a narrative across a millennium, um, particularly from the point of view that what music is about is performance. Music isn't just notes on the page. Music is sound. Music is uh, an experience. And so it just tries to tell that story in a way that re- redefines what has happened over the years, that it's not all about great composers, it's about the social situations in which music uh, was performed. And at the back of the book, I have a 100 uh, great works in a 100 great performances by a 100 different composers. And that is a sort of current snapshot of where the classical music canon is. And yes, exactly as you said, anybody should be able to dip into that uh, 
get a link to Spotify and decide what they want to pursue. And nobody's going to like everything. That's absolutely um, right and proper. But I'm hoping to point people in maybe surprising directions of music that they might not have known that they would like. Uh, that's what we tried to do at the proms. That's what we tried to do at the Barbican. And that's certainly what this book tries to do. I think it's quite interesting that uh, the list at the end, you, you start, um, as it were, with the, with the modern times. So you start with John Adams and then you, you move back to Plain Chanter right at, right at the end. What was the, what was the logic behind that? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I did originally think of trying to write the book backwards and and start with the experience of music today and then but it was just too complicated as a narrative but in terms of the music that we experience where better to start than what people have written today and yesterday and then it seemed far too predictable to do a list of pieces starting with plain song what we should do having read through the book and explored a millennium of music coming up to the present, is then, as it were, to spool back through the uh, centuries and choose highlights from each of those centuries as we work our way back to plain song as the first literate written-down music. And in a way, that's exactly how people experience other art forms. You know, when you, when you start reading... Um, books, you know, you'll, you'll probably read modern novels first before you um, before you get into Chaucer, let's say, and that sort of, um, you know, often when you have the sort of thousand great classical performances or whatever, there's a sort of homework aspect or like a dutiful aspect, right? What do I just start in the twelfth century and work my way through? But no one actually ever really does that, do they? No, exactly. And that is a really interesting, uh, the way you put that, that is a really interesting aspect of the way that musical tradition has changed in an age of recording and broadcasting. Because if you think of, of music in the 19th century, what you heard was the music of today, uh, and there was very little old music, in quotes, that was performed. And so composers listened to what was going on, they reacted against it or for it and pushed the development of tradition on that way. But now, via recordings, via Spotify, everything musical is available to us at the flick of a switch, if you know how to work out the data, as it were. And so you've, you've got this situation where instead of a continuous evolving tradition step by step, everything is there to be selected from, chosen from, and, you know, the music of Bali can be as attractive as the music of Beethoven or uh, the music of Macho uh, as much as that of Mozart. So I think that's a real change to the way that people experience music today. And it's a richness, you know, we can cross genres. I, I think one of the things is that uh, the whole definition of classical music as a genre in itself is beginning to uh, fall apart uh, in a positive way because the barriers are down between that and other musics. 
Yes, I mean, you can really lose, lose yourself on YouTube looking at, um, you know, old opera recordings. And um, my, my sort of favourite one is people when they sort of put the beginning of a symphony in their top 15 sort of or 20 recordings of it. So I was listening the other day, somebody had, had done Beethoven's Fifth, done by so many different performers. Right. And if you, if you don't realise quite that it really matters who is doing the performance... And it just makes it absolutely clear to you. And then you have hundreds of YouTube comments of people arguing over with the best one. I, um, must, I must look for that in that case, because Beethoven 5 is a very interesting example of something I try and demonstrate early in the book, which is that the actual score, the actual notes on the page of the beginning of Beethoven 5 really don't give you anything the, uh, of a, a clue about the impact of that music when performed. And the fact that you can perform it in so many countless different ways is, is a real eye-opener in terms of those who, you know, believe that the music is the score. It's far more than that. Um, uh, absolutely. And do you think for composers, and as, as listeners, it's great, for composers working today, then that offers up, huge different um, opportunities as well, doesn't it? It it does. I often wonder about this because I, I think it must be disorientating for composers to have so much music available to them and in their mind as they create a style of their own. And of course, we are seeing these days a lot of composers referring to the music of the past, using the music of the past, rearranging it. And I I think that is perfectly um, understandable in terms of the situation that they're in. Um, It's a very different approach to composing from Brahms, listening to Beethoven and then creating his symphony next. Um, or even the revolutionary composers that I try and highlight in, in the book, Schoenberg, Beck and Weber, and throwing out the conventions of tonality and trying to write in a completely different harmonic language. So I think it's, it's tough for composers today, but as I say, it, it is a richness that there's so much music available and we've got uh, marvellous composers creating it. And do you think that the sort of bifurcation between the pop music world, which is obviously incredibly dominant, and the classical music world, which obviously has happened, but do you think that there's a possibility that those things could be melded and mixed in some ways and be mutually sort of, re- you know, they can interpret each other and be, be fueled by each other? Well, what, what we're finding at the Barbican is increasingly in our music programming, the things that are, uh, attract a lot of attention are the things where there are crossovers between genres. And I don't mean crossover in the term, in sort of diluted terms, but creative crossover of different genres. And I think it is also true that um, classical and other genres can come together and interact and intermingle uh, in a very creative way. So I'm I'm all in favour of that being uh, the way of the next generation, which is to revel in diversity. Let's enjoy the, the wealth of difference in the whole language of music that exists at the moment. 
And a couple of pieces that you mentioned towards the end, the operas, it's striking how a lot of modern operas reflect on current events and, and what's going on right now. You can think of John Adams' as Nixon in China or Death of Klinghoffer, or even um, one of my favourite recent ones, which is um, Anne in a Coal uh, yeah. by Mark Antony Turner. You know, does that, that, somehow that clash of different, um, as it were, worlds uh, leads to some really quite interesting results, doesn't it? I mean, um, those all those that you mention there are really powerful um, contemporary parables. Uh, but I think we've shown also in recent opera the ability to reach back into the distant past for the sources of, of um, music drama, a piece like George Benjamin's Written on Skin with its medieval Provencal tale is amazingly contemporary in terms of the, the passions that, that it sets up. So I think on, one, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there's the very interesting phenomenon of contemporary and updated performances and stagings of classic old operas and that is a different way of making opera relevant to the present time and to present day audiences which um, of course it rouses horror in the breasts of some traditional opera goers but I think it's uh, one of the most creative trends in opera in, in recent decades. No absolutely and what do you if I can pin you down, what are you most looking forward to to, to listening to in you know uh, in real life when when everything comes back? <laughs> well, of course, I'm not allowed to choose one thing over another because then uh, then everybody else would be mortally offended. I, I I am looking forward to hearing a full symphony orchestra in the Barbican or in the Albert Hall or in the Festival Hall because the visceral impact of a full symphony orchestra and preferably with a full chorus as well is something that can't be gainsaid. So, uh, it, you know, I'm looking forward both to the Barbicans live from the Barbican series continuing but also to hearing what's going to be happening at the proms in the Albert Hall this summer and hopefully as we get towards the autumn to the series is from our orchestras and opera houses um, when we will be able to welcome people back on a fuller basis. And will you um, and the performances be reflecting in some ways on the rather sort of tragic year that we've had with so many uh, deaths? Because we know that one of the great functions of, of music is to um, offer some kind of a balm to in troubled times. Yes, and I think we need to observe that, as indeed Simon Rattle's performance of Das Lied von der Erde the other night uh, uh, did that very strongly. I think we've got to balance that with the feeling that we are now moving forward into a new era and uh, a new era which will hopefully be on, you know, a more humane level of activity, probably n not as absolutely ferment of activity that was there before the virus. We have learnt something about how to behave and we need that humanity to translate into our concert and artistic life. Nick Kenyon, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Next week, I'll be back with the academic David Herman talking about the life 
and mind of the Palestinian-American critic Edward Said, what he made especially of the Israel-Palestine dispute. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.